I don't know how many hours a week your parents chain you to the piano, Jessica, but it's working, however many hours it is. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. A year has passed since we've been in the book of Nehemiah. Hope that doesn't sound uh, deceptive, as we talked about in Sunday school. <clears throat> but we are in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 9, you can be turning your Bibles there. Uh, did anybody, last week we talked about Psalm seventy-three twenty-six, the but God theme. Did anybody, have, did anybody have a but God week, if you know what I'm talking about? There's a few that had a but God week. Is God your portion this morning? You're all in all? I hope he is. And this message this morning fits right into that theme. Although I prepared this message way before I prepared my theme for the uh, new year of 2016. But I want to talk about are we wearing the right robe? Actually, I think the bulletin says robes. I mistakenly put an S on that. But really, are we wearing the right robe? And by the end of the sermon this morning, I think you'll know what that means. But we've been in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah over the last year. And we have literally been watching, as we read God's word, the unfolding of a people of God that had gone AWOL, that had gone stray and let their hearts grow cold before God, rebuild their lives of worship. They're basically almost starting from scratch. That's how far away that they had fallen from the living God. And the first seven chapters were all about this, this push and this drive to build a wall around Jerusalem. And it was hard work and they did it in the midst of opposition. They had a trowel in one hand and a sword in another, but they persevered and the wall has been built. Now they can be in their city, they can be safe, they can build their families, they can worship the Lord without the threat that they once endured with no walls between them and the opposition. And then in chapter 8, a shift took place from rebuilding walls or a well-built wall to a well-built heart. And we get, we're beginning to see these characteristics of a well-built heart form because they really are rebuilding their lives of worship. And so now, rather than seeing destruction, we are seeing spiritual progress. And so we witness such things as unity, a characteristic of a well-built heart, is being unified. And they came together as one man behind these walls to worship the Lord. And another characteristic we saw was just this hunger for God's word. I mean, six-hour sermons and so forth. Just standing in the presence of the Lord, hungering, wanting to know, even having the priest, please explain this to me what I'm hearing. Are we hungry for God's word this morning? And then another characteristic was prayer and praise and also knowing when to repent, switch emotional gears and knowing when it's God's calling us to a time of praise. So all of these characteristics are emerging as they are rebuilding their lives and even the characteristics, uh, a characteristic of a joyful obedience, not just an obedience. OK, I'll do it, God, but I will do this, Lord, and I will like it. I take great joy and delight in obeying you. But we've seen that. So we've seen that the structure is not enough, though they worked hard for the physical rocks. And when, when the Old Testament uses the word rock, it's not what we would think in our culture. I mean, they have rocks. Like, you can't move those rocks. You can't lift them. You can't throw them. 
These are huge rocks. But unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. And that's what they're seeing. The, the walls aren't enough. That's not the true source of their protection. That's not the true source of their policies. Even all of the, the policies and the institutions, the, the rules, as good as they were that Nehemiah came up with and, and gave to the people so that they could live in harmony. They had a time to do this, you know, shutting the gates, opening them, keeping themselves safe. That's not enough. What they, what they need is for God to be the center focus of their entire lives. Of all the daily activities. Of all the rules and all the, rev, the regulations. So God must be the Lord of all our endeavors. And so, after many chapters really of darkness and hardness of heart and opposition, we have just seen them take off spiritually. And we're going to continue to see as we... Continue in um, Nehemiah through the rest of the chapters. For the most part, they continue to experience a reformation. They are conforming their lives to the laws of Christ, to the character of God. There's still a little bit of sin that needs to be dealt with, and it will be dealt with. <clears throat> but for right now, we're just enjoying this wonderful reformation. Their obedience, their joy is paying off. In chapter 9, what we're going to look at today is basically... Almost the entire chapter is a prayer, and it's a long prayer. It is one of, if not the longest prayers in the Old Testament. It's a lot of verses, <clears throat> and I'm going to read them all this morning because I don't like to take huge chunks of Scripture. I think it's too much for us to try to digest at one time. But this is a, a prayer that has continuity because it's almost like a history lesson or the history of, of God's people to where they are this very day as they stand behind the wall and pray this prayer. So there's continuity to it. So I really need to read the whole thing. However, because it is such a large chunk of scripture, uh, we will spend a few weeks in it, three to be exact, to digest it, to look at, to pick it apart. And it's a prayer. And we're going to be taught by God's word, by listening, by meditating on this prayer. This morning, what we're going to observe is the gospel in this prayer. I mean, this guy is praying the gospel, and that'll come out. Next week, we'll look at four aspects of the nature of prayer. Because there's a pattern here that he sets, and we can learn from that. And also, it's a prayer of repentance. And so, the following week, we will look at uh, what true repentance is. Or actually, we will look at what... Repentance isn't in order to learn what true repentance is. So we're going to camp in the theme of prayer for the next several weeks. And we want to take note of that. So let me begin. What I'm going to do to break it up a little bit, I'll read the first five verses, comment on those, and then we'll read the rest and comment on those. So chapter 9, book of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chananiah. And they cried with a loud voice 
to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel and Bani and Heshabaniah and Sherebiah and Hodai and Shabaniah and Pathahiah, maybe. I don't know. Said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Bless it be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. As you can see, in this atmosphere, there's a worship service going on. And these people are hungry for God. They are before the Lord. Are we hungry for God this morning? So they have been assembling. We've been looking at this all month. This is a feasting month. It's a worship month. It's a celebration month. And they've been gathering all month, off and on, celebrating these feasts. And they have been praising. They've been confessing. They've been repenting. They've been hungering for God's word, learning God's word. They've been fasting, experiencing this reformation, which means they are forsaking the things of the world and conforming their lives to what's written in God's word. That's a reformation. Reform ourselves. You know, they've met for six hours this day. They meet for three hour chunks instead of doing all six hours in God's word. They broke it up three hours in God's word and then three hours of confession and just a time of praise and exaltation. I would imagine that uh, if they had the band there and the choir were sit, was singing for those three hours on and off, they were, their voices, their lungs were worn out. And if they were playing instruments, can you imagine for like a three-hour session? Unless you do it professionally. If they were uh, air instruments, you'd be running out of air. If they were string instruments, your fingers might start to get a little sore. But they pressed on because they were hungry for God, singing these psalms to the Lord. <clears throat> I'm sure the the preachers were tired as well as they read God's word and expounded that. And, you know, confession can take a toll on you, too. It wears our bodies out crying and the tears and the grief that we express. But it is spiritually invigorating. Nehemiah is still keeping track of the days. This is the 24th day of this month of feast, this seventh month, power packed month of worship. They've already celebrated several feasts, several feasts. They've had a week of fasting. They took a few days to take a breather, get back to home, feed the animals, whatever they need to do. And now they are back assembled before the Lord for this powerful uh, service. And they are going all out. It's really nice to see after decades of hardship and decades of not sensing God and not living for God and not seeking God. What it looks like for people to agree to come together and say, let's do this. Let's get our lives right before the Lord. Let's do, let's do what we can do in the strength and the grace of God. So basically, after all of the destruction, the downtime, they're surrendering their lives to him. We are basically witnessing God becoming their portion. They're getting their priorities straight. He is becoming the focus and the center and all that really matters to them. So here they are. They're fasting. Uh, they're, they're wearing sackcloth and they have earth on their heads. What does all this mean? What is symbolized here? Well, the, the sackcloth is what it sounds like. It's cloth that's made into sacks so that you put stuff in it. Or we might consider like a burlap material. Um, we even use burlap today. You can still get, I think, grass seed in it and feed. Uh, we, it's a fad also for decorations. It was in our wedding, Jesse's wedding. 
burlap everywhere on the tables. And if you rubbed your hands against it, you, against it, you would notice that's not like silky smooth. It's, it's purposely a rough material. And that day it was made out of goat's hair. So they're in sackcloth, which represents or symbolizes sorrow. There's sorrow before the Lord. It's, it's purposing to be irritated and, and uncomfortable as I thought about wearing sackcloth. It's kind of like today, maybe if we were to make a winter jacket out of fiberglass insulation and wear it around. It just gets all in your skin and it's, it's purposely irritating. So that's what they are before the Lord with their sackcloth. Symbol of sorrow. And then they're skipping meals. Purposely volunteering to skip meals just to, to, for symbolizing the self-denying of the flesh. I don't have to do this. I want to do this. And I'm going to deny myself so that I can gain spiritually if it's available. And then the earth on the head is a symbol. It's basically the dirt. Why would they put dirt on their heads? Well, it's, it's a symbol of mortality from dust to dust. So they're sorrowful. They're grieving. They're, they're self-sacrificing. They're recognizing the mortality before God. What does all this mean? What's the bottom line of all this? It basically means... That what we're watching is a people that at one time didn't really take God seriously. And now they're taking God seriously. That's what we're seeing. This is characteristic. These kind of things are characteristic of a people that are taking God very seriously in any age, in any generation. That's what it looks like. And it's not something that you do every day. You don't come and gather every day. It's just certain times when we're called on or one necessary. God has responsibilities at home and comforts at home, things that need to be tended. But there are times when in order to seriously seek after God, we have to come before him in this way. With this kind of hunger, with this kind of desire to get right. And yes, with this kind of desire to rid ourselves of the things that are hindering us from experiencing the presence of of God. So they're laying aside these things in order to be strengthened, in order to be renewed, in order to really connect as the people of God. And I think they, what they've learned is that if God isn't at the center of all this, the center of my life, the center of my marriage, the center of my family, the center of my business, the center of my home, I don't really have much to go home to anyway. Because when you put God as the top priority, the things that we do have, the material blessings that we do have, that's where they get their meaning and significance anyway. And when you kick God out of these things, they lose their luster. They lose their place. It's the same today. Things really haven't changed. We, we are still in need of God. And yes, God's people still meet like this. We still have times where we come together for prayer. We pray every meeting, every Sunday meeting. Before, during, and sometimes after. People, God's people still get together for prayer. We still get together uh, for the exposition, exposition of God's word. To hunger for that. To, to say, what are you telling me this morning, God, in your word? We still pray. We still fast. We still confess. We still repent. In the early church, uh, the Christians did it on the Lord's Day. The resurrection day, which became the holiest day of the week. And became their Sabbath because of the victory in Christ that he gained for us and our rest. And so they did these things in the early church. We still do them today. We come together. 
I'm reminded of a verse in 1 Timothy uh, 4.13 where the great apostle Paul tells his student Timothy, that young minister, that young pastor. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, preaching and the teaching. And so, yes, their worship is about holy convocations. It's about all the saints of God's company. Saints of God coming together. You know, in this day and age, we're trying to make our relationship with God so personal and intimate. It's all about our personal devotions. It's all about me and Jesus. And it's not all about me and Jesus. It's about the body of Christ in Jesus. And these people are recognizing that. And then, so during this great worship service, towards the end, the Levites stand up on the stairs where they can be heard. And it says they cry out in a loud voice. And they call to the people and they say, stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So that's the context that this prayer that we're about to read takes place in. Tremendous spirit of worship there. People are hungry, praising, exalting. Bottom line of this prayer, why is it prayed? What are they looking for? Well, it's, there's a lot here, so let me just tell you what it's all about before I read it. This prayer is basically an appeal to God. They are appealing to God, who in the past revealed himself as the great and mighty and merciful God to his covenant people. And it is appeal that... That this same God for them in their day would display that same mercy, that same grace and that same power as he displayed to those before him. That's what this is. If we want to if we want God to reveal himself in mighty ways, as he has been faithful to do in the past, this is one of the ways to bring it about to pray these kinds of prayers. So we'll take note as we read verses 6 through 37. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, and Hittite, and Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the mist of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone in the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws. 
good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And here's that three-letter word, that transitional word that can change the course of a story. And that's what takes place. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, which means proudly, wickedly, uh, as if they arrogantly, as if they deserve these kind of things. And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manner from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. With their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they should or would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Just FYI, I mean, this is greater than what happened in America. Even when they came to America and they found this rich land, they had to make trails and cut down trees and start from scratch. Build their homes. Plant their gardens. This was already there for them. I mean, their inhabiting houses already has the pots and pans in the, in the car in the garage, so to speak. That's how good God was to them. The, the soil was already fertile. The plants were already planted. God is so good. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. 28. But... After they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet 
They acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which is which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your Great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. I'll save verse 38 for another time. And you thought our praise and prayer went long. Now you have a new appreciation for Kevin and Corky, don't you? So, this longest, if not the longest, prayer in the Old Testament... It's not hard at all to see what God wants us to see in this prayer. I mean, he just lays it out as clearly as it possibly as he possibly can. And the basic gist of this is that we man is incredibly sinful. Beyond imagination. And God is incredibly unfathomably gracious and merciful and faithful. And good to his covenant people. I don't know that there's ever a prayer where this was as clear as this. When you look at the big picture of redemption. And you look at all that the people have done. And all that God has done. The bottom line is that man has acted wickedly. And God has acted faithfully. This is like a but God prayer, isn't it? Almost, although in reverse rather than. Talking about the negatives, he starts out with the positive of God. And what is this really in essence? What we've just read or prayed is the gospel message. That's what it is. He just prayed the gospel message. Here's how the gospel works. God calls. Man rebels. God draws near. Man runs far. God gives holy laws, pure and perfect. Man lives an unholy life. Man sins, God forgives. Man constantly needs a savior and a deliverer. God constantly saves and delivers. That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. That's our life. And it's a powerful way to pray. Now notice in this prayer what the Levites don't do. Like the righteous uh, Pharisee in Jesus' parable. They don't come before God and say, God, look at all that we've accomplished. We worked hard, for goodness sake, on that wall. And we're working hard to put our lives back in order. And therefore, we appeal to your mercy. They don't do that. And they also don't, notice, say, Lord, we're victims of our father's sins. Because my father was a drunk, I'm a drunk. Because my mother ran around, I run around. I don't know how to have wholeness and completeness. I'm just following right in their footsteps and I can't even help it. They confess the sins of their fathers and they confess their sins. And they say, my parents were broken and by my own choice, I'm choosing to to do evil too. And so what are they appealing to God for? For this divine favor, how will it come? They appeal to God's mercy alone. They don't look at their own righteousness as hard as they've been working and as well as they've been doing. They are appealing strictly to the mercies of God because their own hearts are inescapable. It's very obvious that they don't have what it it takes. They have not earned anything. It's obvious that they are just an undeserving people. And when you realize the bottom line is I'm an undeserving person, what else can you appeal to? If you never deserve anything... All we can appeal to is mercy, somebody's mercy, somebody's grace. And guess who's abundant in it? God. So they appeal to God's divine favor on the basis of God's forgiveness. If you want God's divine favor to descend upon you and he's sovereign and he gets to pick and choose what that looks like. But if we hunger for it, the best way that we have to obtain the presence of God. Is strictly by appealing to the mercy of God. Well, there's something else to it that we'll look at now as well. Not only do we appeal to the mercies of God, but we appeal to the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. Back in November, uh, when Brad was leading, leading worship, I think it was the first Sunday of Communion Sunday, and he read out of Philippians 3, 7 through 9. And he talked about this same thing. Let me read it to you. The Apostle Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Two things going on here. One is, it's a New Testament way of Paul saying, God is my portion. Because there were times where I had an abundance more than I ever even needed, and there were times when I had nothing. But look what I had. I had the knowledge, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. Just like Job. And he realized, what's the most valuable thing that I could ever have in my entire life? It's Christ. And so the other things come and go, but I still have this most valuable thing. That's how we're not wiped out. That's how we don't have to live in despair, knowing that we have Christ. But then it goes on. It's not just about God as my portion. But it is Christ is my righteousness. 
And he has this little dialogue here and he's recognizing that, that we do good works, we do good things. He's worked hard to do good things. He was a law-abiding citizen, a Pharisee of all Pharisees or Jew of all Jews. If anybody had a right to brag about uh, doing good things and looking good in the eyes of man, it was the Apostle Paul. But his perspective, notice, what is his perspective on human righteousness or human goodness or human deeds, which are pleasing in the eye of the Lord if they're done with the right motive as tokens of love to him. But when it comes to standing before God, he's saying we have a righteousness. We do good things that in the eyes of men are good. You know, there's degrees of holiness and righteousness and morality. And he has that that might look his robe of righteousness, per se, that he has knitted for himself or made for himself. is probably a whole lot more impressive than mine would ever be if you look at it from a human perspective. You know, moral accomplishments, they look good when we compare to them. To others. But when we compare our moral accomplishments or our righteousness to that of God's, they are just as impoverished as our moral failures. And so he is appealing, the Apostle Paul is appealing to God strictly on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. This is so important. It is not only our sins and our failures that are offensive to God or that sin falls short of the glory of God, right? It's not only our offenses and failures that fall short of God. It is also our very best deeds. The very best thing that we could come to God before and present it to him. They fall short and it's like rubbish, the apostles say. It's like trash, throw it in the trash heap compared to the righteousness that God demands and the righteousness that Christ offers just as deserving of God's wrath. You see, fall short. So the only reason they made it out of the desert at all was because of the power of God, not their own. The only reason they made it through the Red Sea was because of the power of God, not their own. The only reason they made it into the land and were able to win any battles was because of the power of God and not their own. The only reason they were able to have be so fruitful, fruitful was because of the power of God and not their own virality or vitality. You see, when you realize that God, it's God's grace that makes all this happen, what are you going to present before the Lord when he's the one that enables you to accomplish anyway? It's not our own godliness. It's not something that we can boast in. And so there's, in essence, Paul in this passage is saying, I'm, I'm taking off what I have acquired, what I have accomplished. When I'm in the presence of God, it doesn't do me any good. And I just bathe in the right, I put on the right robe, the robe of Christ. The righteous robe. Because that's what I've gained and that's all that matters. And that's the gospel. That's how God saves us. Even his good works don't come close. And if anybody had a right to brag, it was the Apostle Paul. So there it is. Man needs God and God gives himself. Man's in need of God and God gives himself. It's a Christmas story too. God with us. I give you myself. I didn't send another prophet or a messenger. I came myself and I gave you myself. You know why? Because that's what you need. 
And that's the gospel. We need God and he gives himself to us. Another way to look at this is that because salvation is by faith, our salvation has to remain by faith. I think the temptation is this sometimes as we mature in Christ, as we grow in Christ and we do become more upright and moral. Our temptation is to come into our worship times mindful of our own personal accomplishments and maybe even tempted to think that because I just was like consistent consistent for three months in a row with my devotions and I'm signed up for every church event that surely God's pleased with me this morning as I worship him. That's a temptation, especially for mature Christians. It's a pit that people can fall into. And the idea is that even those things, we don't ever come to approach God on the basis of our accomplishments as impressive as we may be with them and others as well. Our worship has to be based on the grace and mercy of God. We, we, We start out by faith and we need to end by faith. So at no point... Should we ever start to feel secure in our relationship on the basis of our accomplishments? Our security always has to be poured in on and relied upon what Christ accomplished for us. So as we think about this, begin to wind down a little bit. That was quite a diverse group, I'm sure, of Israelites that gathered during this powerful these powerful days of worship and i'm just would venture to say that there's no way in the world they could all be saved by the atoning blood of the sacrifice because we we're going to see that uh, they still have some areas that they need to work on and we've always looked at already looked at areas that they needed to work on uh their hearts they're just starting to warm up to god so i would venture to say that during this time that probably not all of them had a saving faith But, you know, it's interesting that in this prayer that this man of God mentions all these failures of God's people. I mean, one after one. How do you even approach God after praying a prayer like that? But on the mercies of God, basically, we, we fail you every time you give us good things. But, you know, it, it's said that even though they were so rebellious cloud was still there. The fire was still there every night. The manna was still there. I mean, in the midst of whining, in the midst of terrible unbelief and idolatry, there's God taking care of these wicked, unfaithful people. And there's a sense in which I think we, we think about that. We have to come to this place if we're seeking Christ, if, if we're among the people of God, but not a people of God. In other words, we've never confessed Christ. There has to be a, a message in there about, you know, if God could even accept these bums, even take care of with common grace, these bums, certainly I can entrust my life to him. There's a place for me. I haven't worn out the welcome mat, so to, play, so to speak. What, what a message of grace. What a prayer of grace. All the things I've done, all the things they did, 
God still welcomed them to faith. It's undeserved. Sometimes the Holy Spirit works in our hearts like that and He helps us to see. And God pursues in this age of the church with His Holy Spirit. He left, Christ went up and the Spirit came down. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. He prompts us. He inspires us and He's talking to us. He's drawing us and He's wooing us. And those experiences are real and true even though He's the invisible God. And if there's anybody here this morning... Perhaps you found hope thinking, wow, I thought I was too far gone. That was me at one time. I thought there's no way in the world God can forgive me for all I've done. He did. Maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you this morning to just come to grips with the grace of Christ that says, if you repent and confess and put on the robe of righteousness of Christ, you can receive the grace of God. And it's by faith. There's something else going on here. Two, and that is with the people of God. The people of God have that have been saved, perhaps they, they had their faith in Christ. That the people of God can be encouraged in their worship. And that they can grow in this experience as they continue to surrender their hearts to the Lord. As they continue to come clean and confess before the Lord. And be encouraged that the, that, that the basis of this whole relationship is God and what he can accomplish. I think it's an encouraging prayer for those that have been a Christians for a while because sometimes it gets old, it gets stale. Uh, we get complacent. We think we've reached a level of righteousness that's high enough. Thank you very much. I'm so much higher than others that I see. And what an encouragement to know that we can t- continue to press on. And continue to grow in our faith when it's placed in the right place, Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to know that no matter how far we have fallen, but God, nevertheless, yet, God is faithful and merciful to an undeserving people. So, unbeliever and believer alike, we are undeserving, but we can receive We don't want to confuse the sanctifying work of God. That is that he's making us holy with the idea that we're knitting our own robes and that we have something present before him that he will be pleased in. Our works are what on the basis of faith? They're just a token of love. Because God has been gracious to you here, I give this to you as a token of love because I've received your divine favor. That's what it is. And they're received only on the basis of Christ. So. Whose robe are we wearing this morning when we stand before the holy God? And this is a sanctuary. It's just like when they came together in a holy convocation into the temple or behind the walls. They left their daily responsibilities and they entered into the sanctuary of God. And it's a symbol of saying, I'm leaving the things of the world behind. I'm laying those aside and I just want to connect and meet with God. I'm separating from the things of the world. This is a sanctuary. Where we separate ourselves from the things of the world. Whose robe are we wearing? You know, when we come before him each Sunday, it is a fresh reminder of the incredible gospel of grace. It's a fresh reminder that we are here on this earth to exalt, to use our every breath to exalt Christ. To exalt him in what we do, what we think, and what we say. And I just want us to leave here this morning... Understanding the gospel and the grace of God. 
and being encouraged, actually encouraged, not discouraged that we don't impress God with our works, but to be encouraged that he is so abundant in grace and so willing and generous to give it to us. To acknowledge that we have fallen short is to celebrate the grace of God. That's the beauty as we expose ourselves to God's word. We're going to find, as we continue to search Scripture and grow in Christ, I think we'll find that we are even more evil than we ever imagined. We're even more wicked than we ever thought. But we're also going to find, as we have found in this prayer, that God is incredibly more merciful and loving and forgiving than we ever imagined. As we stand before the living God in the presence of God, What robe are we wearing this morning? What are we presenting before Him? May it be the righteousness of Christ alone. God is my portion. And I pray that God would bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Amen.